Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast, where we will explore the unique experiences, skills, and abilities high performers bring to bear in their field. In each episode, we will unpack the guest's expertise and insights to help all of us develop our own unfair advantage. Welcome back to the Unfair Advantage podcast. I am so excited to be joined by Dr. Joe Baker today. Joe, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. How about you, Alex? I'm good. I'm excited for this conversation. We were joking offline that you're sort of a jack of all trades, master of several. You you describe yourself as unfocused. Can you tell us where your lack of focus has led you? What are you now an expert in? Um, yeah, I'm, I don't know if I'm comfortable with the the title of expert, but I think um, we've got a number of areas that we're interested in, all of them to do with sport. And um, I think it's you know, I think I start from the perspective that sport is maybe the best activity that we have for fi- figuring out what the limits of us as individuals and as a species is. And so uh, we use sport as a as an environment for trying to answer those questions, whether it's athlete development, what's the absolute limits of our potential as individuals, or to understand uh, how we develop better kids, uh, how we might be able to maintain function and performance as we get older. Uh, there's no better environment than sport. And so that's kind of the the MO of our lab is how can we use sport to answer these kind of big questions? And then over the last, well, I guess it's 20 years, the primary focus has been on high performance athlete development. So everything from talent, what is it? How do we identify it? How can we be better? All the way to practice environments. Uh, How do we develop better systems? How do we help coaches do their jobs better? All that kind of stuff. There is so much we're going to unpack here. This is going to be a jam-packed 40 or so minutes, and, and I'm confident there's going to be a round two. So we don't have to get to all of it today. I want to start, though, with kind of a big audacious question, which is like, what is the most ambitious question you've tried to tackle in your research? I think it's um, it's one that we're tackling at the moment right now is how do we use sport as a model for optimal for understanding optimal human uh, potential? And a lot of that comes out of the aging work that we do right now. If there's one question that's got the greatest social value, it's how can we use sport to help uh, older adults get more out of their life to help them maintain function and performance to decrease visits to the hospital and time in long-term care. Like that's, that's really the most socially important question that we're wrestling with at the moment. And it's interesting because the models that we use in high performance athlete development and the ones we use in maintenance of function in older life are the same models. It's mm-hmm. quality of engagement. It's supports that you can provide that person so that they're participation increases or, or or stays the same. It's the same kind of things, social support and quality of learning instruction, resources that we provide them with, all that kind of stuff. It's the same equation. We're just choosing a different outcome. That's a pretty important learning to get, I, w- I would think. That's an important insight you've just unpacked. Yeah, I think it's, and it's, uh, you know, it it came, we stumbled upon it, but it's like the start of my research career in this area was as a deliberate practice guy. And so the deliberate practice stuff is one of those universal principles of function and development. If you want to get better at something, then practice more, practice better, practice smarter. Uh, That's a universal, regardless of whether we're talking about musicians or athletes or older people trying to maintain function, same, same situation. Let's debate deliberate practice for a minute then, shall sure. we? Sure. <laughs> you you are far more expert in this than I am. I think, you know, part of my 
bias coming into the conversation is I, I think this concept's been a little bit butchered by some pop psych um, and been sort of like overextended and maybe even overemphasized as sort of like the foundational piece of mastery, which I think is just a lot more complicated than this. And so I'm curious kind of what your general response is to what I'm starting with here. And then I'll go from there. Yeah, I think I agree 100%. Uh, even though I started as a deliberate practice guy, um, you know, and the the reason that I wrote this most recent book uh, is because every time we talk to coaches about increasing pr- uh, quality of practice, increasing time on task, that kind of stuff, the issue of talent kept coming up. And so our goal was not to go around that concept, but to go through it. And so um, the one thing that I think you know, the deliberate practice in terms of being misunderstood is, is when people put it on the nurture side of the equation and say that, you know, this is something that you have complete control over and has nothing to do with genetics or, or talent. And I would say that's not true. A a person's interest in doing monotonous training, you know, the, uh, the Kobe Bryant's, for example, that would go into the gym and spend hours just shooting free throws. Some people are going to be wired to want to do that kind of activity and other people are not. At the end of the day, you could look at it and say, well, they put in more hours, but it's why did they put in more hours? What drove them to put in more hours, which could have a genetic basis. And so I, I agree with you that the concept of deliberate practice has been a little bit overblown and that's probably because of our tendency to just make complicated things really simple (laughs) yes we do have a bias for that don't we um i I think the the genetic component's an interesting comment and it reminds me you know some of what you're talking about with kobe for example and this just you know general principle for excellence which is i think kind of universal like if you want to be great at anything it is pretty routine Um, and largely mundane, right? Like excellence in a lot of places looks like just like doing your stuff every day. Um, and so, you know, I think it's interesting to the, some people are wired that way. And then, you know, there, you may know him, Dr. Michael Inslicht was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he's done a lot of work on how we teach people to value effort intrinsically. And so I, I do think you're right. There are these other factors that whether it's social and conditioning, learning environment, genetics, whatever, that do lead someone to engage in these behaviors in a very different way than others. So what's the limit of the deliberate practice research? What do you feel really confident standing on? And where do you draw the line and say, you know what, I'm not sure this is totally right? I think where I would say it's not totally right is when we simplify it. And whether that's deliberate practice or grid or mindset or any of these hot topics that um, that are being sold as, you know, the answer, um, I think we should be wary of anything that comes out and says, hey, I've got the single answer because there isn't a single answer. There's a thousand answers. The, the computations to get to expertise or uh, achievement is so varied and individual that there is no one size fits all solution. Um, Where I really like the idea of deliberate practice is um, after, you know, almost 25 years uh, doing this, when we put um, regression models or statistical models of prediction Uh, into place and we look at what's the variable that predicts the greatest amount of variance, which one's most important. Deliberate practice is the king of uh, variables that you have control over. And so when we work with athletes and coaches, that's the message, not deliberate practice is everything, but deliberate practice is the most important thing that you have control over. And so how do you 
provide more opportunities for practice? How do you balance load and recovery? How do you increase the quality of the learning environment? Those are all deliberate practice questions. And those are the ones that really have the greatest influence on achievement. That's a really fascinating way to frame the deliberate practice conversation. Because I think when people hear it, they sort of go to the default Anders Ericsson, 10,000 hours, like just brutal repetition of skills until your eyes fall out. And you're sort of saying like, no, it's a lot, it's a lot more than that. And some of what I know your work is about is the idea of self-regulation and self-regulated learning. I'm wondering if you could connect the dots for us, like how is deliberate practices you're describing it relate to self-regulated learning and why are those two concepts important? I think as we've uh, sort of moved forward with the concept of deliberate practice, most of the people, at least their early work in this area, focused on the quantity of engagement. And that kind of missed the point of deliberate practice, because the thing that made deliberate practice deliberate and different from just practice was the quality of the engagement. And so for us, the quality of the engagement comes down to a lot of elements that look like self-regulation. Are you monitoring progression? Are you evaluating what worked and what didn't work? Are you looking to improve the next time you do uh, you do that same practice? That increases the quality of the engagement, but those are all self-regulation um, strategies. I think it's that to me is, you know, as I've started to think about high performance and like, what are the things you're trying to teach people to do in my role? What, what as a sports psychologist, am I really working on? I'm getting progressively more comfortable saying the answer is self-regulation broadly, right? Both from a learning perspective and a practice and skill acquisition perspective in the self-regulated learning sense, and from kind of a physiology thinking, feeling, managing your own environment sense. Um, Is there data to back me up on that? Am I barking up the right tree? This is me selfishly motivated asking you to confirm what I think. Well, I think uh, we're starting to see um, all points converging on that as a pretty important strategy, right? Like the longitudinal data that we have from uh, from the Dutch uh, research group uh, is really clear that ref- in particular reflection as a self-regulation strategy is an important predictor of long-term success. When we designed um, the gold medal profile for sports psychology for Own the Podium uh, last summer, we based the whole thing around self-regulation, that these are ways that an individual needs to regulate their own engagement and a coach needs to think about how they can help an individual regulate that engagement to promote long-term success. Nobody starts, I guess it comes from the perspective that nobody starts with these things in their pocket, that they've got to be learned in structured environments that provide them the opportunities for growth and for development. If we don't do that, then they don't just emerge um, organically. Why is reflection so important? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I guess... I wouldn't say that, you know, I think that we need to look at these self-regulation strategies, not as uh, one versus the others, but as a collection of strategies. And I don't know that um, reflection is really more important than the other ones, uh, because I think uh, all of them relate to each other in a certain way. You can't get to reflection unless you're doing monitoring well, unless you're doing evaluation well. One of the things that we find with these models of high performance athlete development is eventually you lose variability in the uh, population. So it's not that 
Um, some people are evaluating more, some people are evaluating less. It's that everybody's doing evaluating where the variance is in, is in reflection. It's kind of like, um, I use this analogy all the time. It's kind of like height in the NBA. Uh, when you're in the NBA, height doesn't predict very many performance outcomes because everybody's above the mean and height. If you're not tall, you're not in the NBA. And so, I think we need to be thinking about self-regulation strategies the same way. If you're not evaluating or monitoring or um, doing those goal setting stuff, the initial things, then you're not doing reflection. So those things are important. It's just when everybody else is doing all of those strategies, the one that fewer people are doing and the greatest variability is in the reflection element. It's sort of the classic, like, teasing apart expertise at, at the highest level, right? It's like, you've got such a narrow distribution. And yeah. so there just are going to be a few things that people are doing a little bit less, that those are the points where you can differentiate makes a lot of sense to me. How do you connect this kind of self-regulation, which please correct me if, if I'm wrong or framing it poorly. Like when I hear you talking about this kind of goal setting, monitoring, evaluation, reflection, I hear self-regulated learning. As a psychologist, I think also self-regulation, like not controlling my thoughts, like I, there's all sorts of philosophical debate about whether or not that's possible, but like recognizing my thoughts and how to interact with my thoughts, how to interact with my emotion. Is that a fair thing to kind of lump into this? Is it related? Is it separate? How do you tease them apart? Yeah, I think they're, um, so the self-regulated learning part would be under the broader umbrella of self-regulation in general. Uh, our work is focused on the learning part because we're the um, practice environment kind of focused. Uh, and so for us, it was more Zimmerman's um, stuff on how we regulate our own thought processes and our planning behaviors around maximizing learning. Uh, but it does fit under that big, broad umbrella of, of self-regulation in general. The self-regulation in general is the, the umbrella term that we used for that gold medal profile. Not so much learning, but self-regulation as a, from a broad sense. Got it. So you're, you're, I want to double back to the practice environment because it came up. It's coming up here. It's coming up in deliberate practice. Like, what do we know about how to structure a practice environment effectively, and why is a practice environment? so important it's it's important because um you know for every moment that an athlete spends in competition they they spend considerably more in practice and so i guess the the concept that's at the forefront of practice design at the moment is is this thing called representativeness um is the practice environment and are the drills that you're using in that environment representative of the skills that are needed in the competition environment so are you replicating the sources of information, the types of emotion, the, the physiological energy systems, all that kind of stuff? Um, or are you breaking down the drill into such a minute component of the skill that the transfer from that drill to actual performance is, is minimal? Um, the evidence that's come out is that um, suggests that the more representative your practice design is, the more you replicate those um, necessary elements of competition, the better your practice environment's going to be. And that's because it we we think it transfers better to the game, right? Yeah, exactly. And what we've learned about competition is just how specific 
you know, we focus on the physical and the physiological, but the real the specificity is in the perceptual, the cognitive, the information sources, the emotion that needs to be managed, those kinds of things, which are really tough to integrate into a practice environment um, because of the, tr the traditional practice environment focuses on physical technical skill, not, not so much on cognition or perception. We assume those things are going to develop through competition or, or scrimmage or, um, you know, those kinds of things, but no, we can actually design environments for, for those skills to emerge. So what would be some recommendations you'd give to coaches who want to build more representativeness into their practice? What should the two or three things they should do tomorrow? I would, um, I would review the practice, the last practice that you had and think about it in terms of, did I replicate the physical skills necessary? Most coaches will score well in that uh, dimension, but did I replicate the speed and the types of information that athletes are going to need? So if I normally play five on five or seven on seven, did I play two on twos or three on threes because if you did you're compromising the way that the brain is going to process that information it should be as similar as possible to the way that it's um, going to be used in competition and then the last part which is the one that's the most difficult is how did you replicate the emotion that's going to be necessary the pressure the stress the anxiety the noise um, those kinds of things that that's the toughest one to replicate in the practice environment. But, you know, the extent to which we can do that, um, you know, we shouldn't try just because it's difficult. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of some of the kind of, you know, folklore of Patriots practices, for example, where, you know, they were playing loud music and no one sort of suspected that. And when we got behind the scenes, we learned like a lot of it is this attempt to replicate the pressure, the noise, the environment, like the real experience of, of being a player to the best we possibly can. And, and what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm nerding out over here a little bit, but I'm thinking of like the predictive processing theory and the research coming out around that. And the whole idea that like learning is about enriching your models, basically. And you want your models to be as accurate as possible. And so, of course, it makes sense that, you know, practicing a model that you're never going to apply in performance is not really going to work. But I, I think it's like, you know, so deeply entrenched in sport culture to just like rep it out. I mean, soapbox moment for me, but it just like drives me nuts. I'll never forget my first summer in the NBA. I'm out watching workouts in Los Angeles and I'm watching this player shoot out of bounds from uh, front I mean, for three out of bounds, like hundreds of times. And I'm like, this is, this is never going to happen. This is, and there's probably some merit to it, right? Maybe you're working on depth perception and some other things. So it's not to outright dismiss it, but it's like, is this actually a functional thing you're ever going to do? And the answer is no, because the play would be blown dead. And so right. I don't know what you think about that, but it's like, how do we move past that kind of stuckness in the way we do practice so far? Yeah, I think, you know, to, to a certain extent, I, I trust that coaches and, and especially elite players that have gotten to a certain level know what they're doing, but that doesn't mean there's not value in saying, you know, why would, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you move three steps or, you know, 20 degrees to the right where you're in the court, but a little further back the same distance, but now you're in the court, that's a more representative task because that could actually happen. I think the other thing that we need to be careful with is that, 
not every drill needs to be a hundred percent representative all the time. If a coach has a purpose for a drill and that, that player, the, the reason they do that drill could be confidence, right? It could be, I do it because uh, it makes me feel like an absolute rock star when I get off the court. Okay, fine. That's great. That we're working on a different thing there. That's not representative skill design. The extent to which we could try to combine those things, you know, maybe we should be talking about how we do both of those things at the same end. So it's not an either or scenario, but if, if you've got a strategy for why you do that, just tell me what it is. Um, you can, I'm, you, you could convince me that you're doing the right thing, but if we don't have that discussion, then the potential is that we've wasted an opportunity where they could be doing something that was a bit more representative. Well, that feels like a much more reasonable approach than mine. So I'm going to borrow that from you because I think that will make me better. Um, so I think the other thing that's coming to mind for me, listening to kind of the importance of practice design, representativeness, thinking about kind of just generally the way we sort of do things in the sporting environment, maybe bleeds into some of your work around talent, where at least the stuff that I've seen sort of suggests at an extreme view, like talent's not really that important. I mean, it sort of gets you in the door, but that's it. And that really what matters is what happens once you walk in the building, broadly speaking. You know, it's the environment, it's who's around you, who supports you, those kinds of things. Is that accurate? And, and if so or not, why? I would even make it a bit more complicated than that. And so Please. I think, well, the, the way we've sort of divided it is between uh, talent as a concept that has relevance for researchers, which is, you know, from a conceptual idea, does it make sense that there are differences between individuals that are going to affect their likelihood of success? That's the idea of talent. And I think we probably all agree, yeah, not everybody's equally uh, likely uh, to succeed. You know, if you're going to be seven feet, your likelihood of success in the NBA is greater than if your peak height is going to be five feet. That's the reality. Where we make a distinction, though, is the relevance of that concept for coaches. And um, it does. it's not that it's irrelevant. It's that our our ability to identify and measure and evaluate it is is amazingly poor because we don't look at this in a sophisticated enough way and or the outcome that we're trying to predict is so monstrously complicated we're never going to predict it anyway and so we do more harm than good by thinking you know the hair's an elite under 7 or under 9 that's going to be a nba star that kind of um assessment probably does more harm than good it's not to say that the environment is everything, but when we when we focus on talent or when we focus just on the environment, we um, undermine how complicated that that talent by environment interaction is. And so, talent could be how tall you're going to be. It could be how uh, receptive you are to the kind of mind numbing um, modernity of being a high performance athlete, like who wants to do the same thing five or seven days a week? Well, talented people have that, that as part of their, their wiring. And so those things could be markers of talent. Who wants to spend 10,000 hours? If we use that boring uh, cliche, who wants to spend 10,000 hours just practicing? Most people would say, no, I'm going to, I'm going to pick up my game controller or my phone, or I'm going to hang out with my friends or whatever people with the greatest likelihood of success will want to do that. And so that could be a marker of talent. So a super interesting. So how do you define talent then? 
I use the, 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 and maybe it's a little lazy, but the researcher's definition, which is the, the, the quality that differs between individuals that affect their likelihood of success in some sports rowing, I think is a great example. In some sports, we can make it a simple equation. They, they use um, anthropometrics and limb length. And so for them, it's, it's about physics. Um, If you have a big engine and long levers, we can teach you how to row. Okay, that's, I think you've got you whittled talent down maybe to the lowest common denominators, basketball, soccer, um, football, way more complicated, because, you know, there's there's um, in the NBA, for example, there's many different types of guards. There's many different types of point guards and and centers, and you can get to the same place, the same level of success by any number of different ways. When you add that level of complexity, quickly you get to a point where, well, we shouldn't even try to narrow this down because narrowing it down actually assumes that there's a single pathway. It also assumes that the outcome that you're trying to achieve is not, it's not changing as well. And if you look at the NBA, for example, how the game has changed over the past couple decades, you're not predicting an endpoint that's stable either. And so, you know, quickly you get to a point, well, maybe should we not be doing any prediction at all? Should we just try to let athletes have more agency and provide them with opportunities for success and better learning environments and just see what happens? I think that's where maybe that that extreme view comes from, right? It's like, we we can't really predict any of this. It's all very messy. And so let's just, you know, throw up our hands and see what happens. But, you know, the first part of your conversation or what you were sharing reminds me of, you know, I, I think it was uh, Range, David Epstein's book, Range, where he talked a lot about match quality. And that really seems to be like kind of the essence of the first part of what you were discussing, which is there's there is sort of like a baseline interest. There is a baseline ability. There is um, these sort of like, you you have to have them, these non-negotiable characteristics that do lead to excellence. But then you also need like the right people in place to coach and the right environment and these other things to really maximize that. So is that a fair summary there? Yeah, I think that's a fair summary. And the other part that we're just trying to get our, um, our heads wrapped around is the whole um, influence of luck and just being at the right place at the right time, which I think we very like the, and it's interesting because I read, uh, I can't remember the author's name, but it was the really should be called nature, nurture and noise. And we don't really have an understanding of how important that noise part is yet. That's funny that you say that because as part of, you know, as I'm listening to you, one of the things I was thinking about is some of these newer books that are, you know, really like, deeply getting out of the evolution is just epigenetics i'm like no it's you know it's a lot right it's genetics it's culture it's environment it's social systems it's all these things are very very complicated and so we can sort of like pretend that we boil it down and see well your environment flicks your genes on some on and off and here you go but you know really it it is very messy and there is luck and there is um you know like broader societal shifts that influence all these things and push people or pull people in specific directions so it begs the question then like if it's so complicated i don't want to go down the rabbit hole of like why bother because there's a reason you know and and you you like me have been around some really talented executives who do know what they're looking for even if sometimes it's hard to say exactly what that is or you know the system is is kind of constantly evolving so 
what would you say like the role of the talent identification experts are? Like how does someone get good at that? And how do they fit kind of in this puzzle we're describing here? I think at the, it depends on what level we're talking about. I think, uh, you know, if we go pre sort of professional draft um, level of athlete, our goal as a, a scout or a recruiter or a coach should be to mitigate the extent possible how impactful that selection decision is on an athlete not just the ones that are selected but the ones that are deselected because our the likelihood is we're not very good at those assessments and so when we deselect somebody we've given them feedback that's probably going to promote them uh, disengaging from the sport or at least disengaging at the level that we want them to keep engaging in uh, so how do we mitigate that? Have better conversations when you deselect an athlete that's close to the bubble, especially those ones that are in the big gray area where we're not sure about them yet. Have a better conversation. You know, if you have 10 criteria that you use for making your selections, tell them where they, they did well, tell them where they were poorest so that they have something that they can work on. Encourage them to come back next time. We also need to have better conversations with the ones that are selected, because one of the things that a number of sports are starting to find is in the junior development system, a lot of them will get to a junior national team. They'll get the full, you know, Team Canada, Team USA outfits, and they'll stop striving because they think that they've made it. They think they've got some indicator of success. It's a it's a phenomenon called the crown prince syndrome that um, they feel like, hey, I'm in, I'm I'm just one step back in the line from uh, away from success. I think when we get to the the professional level, it's a different kind of um, it's a different kind of beast because the the ones that are drafted they do get access to a system that undrafted players don't get. I think one of the things that we're finding with the professional sports that we work with is um, it's a really difficult outcome to predict, and a lot of times that is when the lack of success happens it's put on the managers it's put on the scouts as if you should have known i think we need to start with recognizing that player identification and trying to predict where someone's going to be in terms of performance you know three five ten years from now is a monstrously complicated task and i try to think of a, a job that we ask a human being to do that's more complicated than that I don't know that there is one, but that's what we ask scouts and coaches to do. And when they fail, we put the blame on them. I think that's where we start. Where I would go after that is development doesn't stop when a player is drafted. And so what do you need to do with that player now to make them thrive in your system? What strengths and weaknesses does your system have that's going to allow them to become a better player? Again, how do you surround them with the best environment for their further development instead of assuming, well, they were drafted first overall, um, the, our, our job's now done. Well, no, the, the lack of success could be because you made a poor choice in the draft, but it could also be you put that player in the wrong environment for their continued development. Again, that's how complicated this thing is that we're trying to predict. I think what it highlights for me is just how important this is as an ongoing process. Like none of these is a finite thing where you get to 
sort of wash your hands and it's kind of like, okay, I'm done now. Like it's the coach's problem or it's so-and-so's problem. And there, there is a tendency in sport to kind of like, you know, look over your shoulder and point fingers and all that stuff. And I think what we're learning and I know what your research suggests is look at times like selection is really, really challenging. Deselection is really challenging. Not everyone has clarity on why they're doing selection or deselection. And sometimes it's just a feeling you got. And sometimes when you're trying to predict talent, it's really messy and you're comparing and contrasting players that would drastically change the trajectory of your team in both good and bad ways. And so you know, I think this integration between identification and development is, is really like for me, the take home, right? It's like, it has to work together in a cohesive whole. And that boils down to the environment, communication, structure, practice, all that stuff. I will say the one other place where I think this can be remarkably complicated, but there's a different level of arrogance that comes. And so we don't perceive it that way, maybe is venture capital. I've thought about that parallel a lot, but you know, venture capitalists, like a 25 year old venture capitalist who's never worked a real job in his life has the confidence to tell some five-time founder how messed up their product is. And whereas, you know, a front office person very rarely has the confidence to tell a basketball player, like, man, you really don't know what you're doing. You know, like there's a reason they got to this level, right? And so maybe that's one difference, but I digress. So it's a conversation for another time. So yeah. I, I guess like, you know, you unpacked it a little bit, this sort of like how to do selection, how to do deselection. I think you pretty recently wrote a paper on how coaches do or don't do that super well. Yeah. What would be the advice you'd give to a group of coaches who want to improve both their communication around their selection process, their deselection process, and how to improve the process itself, right? So how we talk about it and how we do it. I think the thing that surprised us um, in the pro sports that we work with is, and it's it shouldn't have surprised us because it's an obvious thing, is how little um, training they actually have in measurement theory, right? Like the importance of reliability and validity in the measurement tools that you use. Um, even that basic stuff, don't like, don't change your measures that you're using to uh, measure different variables from one year to the next, because then you can't compare from one year to the next. You've compromised reliability. Do you understand what the test actually measures? And is it a, va a valid indicator of that thing you're trying to capture in competition? And again, a lot of combine tests are great general measures of capacities, but they're not reflective of the specificity that's required at competition level. And so, you know, should we change the tests that we use to make them more specific at in the combine? I don't know. That's a discussion that we should have as a sport. Um, what would a combine specific test, the high end representative look like um, for energy systems for, you know, vertical jump is a great one for the NBA, but what's the value of vertical jump in the NHL? Um, those kinds of tests. I think we should be asking those questions. We're trapped a little bit by dogma and, and, and tradition, um, but I think, you know, a progressive sport, a progressive team would be thinking, well, how do I design a set of tests that's more representative of the skills that are necessary? You know, the obvious example is the use of the Wonderlick in the NFL, um, which is a measure of, of uh, crystallized intelligence. How much, how much time have you spent in school? That's not predictive of anything a quarterback does or a running back does. We should be looking at fluid intelligence, movement. In novel situations, how does your brain uh, react? Uh, those types of things. That's um, just basic kind of measurement. The specificity and precision of measurement, I think, would be where I would start. 
from there, I would look at, you know, the systemic biases that we see uh, in the system. Um, early on, we see relative age effects, um, socioeconomic status effects, that kind of stuff. Those, when we're aware of them, when we look for them, those things are easy to adjust and correct for in a lot of sports. And so uh, if we're not looking for them, we don't know what's there. I think what we recommend is coaches and scouts and uh, administrators and managers need to get comfortable with the fact that they're probably going to be more wrong than they are right. And that's a really uncomfortable place for a lot of people to get. But the reality is everybody's at that place. Um, And so the illusion of confidence is probably doing more harm than good. I I like how you summed that up. And I think that's such an important, like dealing with ambiguity, dealing with failure. You know, it's the same thing we ask our players to do, right? Like we ask our athletes to go out there and try to hit 40% from three, like you're still six out of 10. You're not, you're not doing anything that you're proud of. Right. And so that same kind of odds ratio maybe applies. And I appreciate kind of the, the representativeness coming back here. I think the measurements, a a good thing to kind of hit on. And, you know, there've been some improvements in some of these areas, but it's still, um, you know, I think how integrated are people bringing that new data into their system, all that stuff, I think is is highly relevant. Mm-hmm. I want to spend the last few minutes we have kind of talking about where you think this is all going. Like what's what's the future of talent development and talent identification? What should people start thinking about now to get ready for the next wave? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I think the reality is I don't think the idea of talent or at least the need for identification and selection is going anywhere. Um, I think what we have to be careful though, and this is one of the things that I stumbled across working with one of the proteins that we work with and that I wrote about in that book, there's a whole chapter devoted to this is that we maybe don't want to get that much better in our talent identification and development models. Because if I could look at you at, U13 uh, and say, you know, forget about the NBA, that's not going to happen for you. Well, the the player that ends up in the NBA needs you in the system because they're competing against you. They want you striving and being almost as good as they are. Because if we don't have those almost as good as players in the system, then we don't have any uh, anyone there for that elite player to develop against, to strive against. Uh, and so, you know, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Gattaca, but they in Gattaca, they have this, they read your DNA and they can tell exactly what role in society you're best suited for. And so there's a one character in the movie that was a silver medal swimmer. And he said, and he ended up, you know, he had all kinds of mental health problems because he wasn't designed to be second place. That system wouldn't work in our society because for every person who ends up at the Olympics, there's thousands or tens of thousands of people in the system that are supporting that individual's development. If we get too good at being able to say earlier in the pathway, you know, you don't have what it takes or you're not a good uh, choice to move forward in the program, we undermine the whole enterprise. I think recognizing again that sophistication and that complexity in this whole system and how improving in small little bits the way we deliver sport for everybody at every level and how that leads to greater people at the end of the system better athletes um, better fans better spectators better parents um, that's the system that we should be striving for not better accuracy in creating that 0.01% of the people that are going to end up at the professional level. 
I love that. So we've got a moment left here. I know you just wrote a book. I want to make sure you get to talk about it. So tell us a little bit about your book and what people can expect if they pick up a copy. Yeah, it's called The Tyranny of Talent. uh, And the subtitle is How It Compels and Limits Athletic Achievement and Why We Should Ignore It. Something along those lines. Uh, Big, long subtitle. And the reason I wrote it was kind of to capture this complexity that we've been talking about. I start almost 150 years ago when the idea of talent first emerged as a scientific concept. And the idea of uh, it being categorized as a nature versus nurture dichotomy and how that kind of set us on the wrong foot from the very beginning. It set these two things up as being adversaries. And they're not. They're complementary to each other. And so the way we should be thinking about this uh, question is, how do I figure out what you need, what your specific genetic material tells me you need and build an environment around you so that you can thrive and help you build that environment uh, for yourself. That's the complexity and sophistication. And so I talk a little bit about the history. I talk about the, um, the, the power of sport in positive ways and negative ways. Uh, and then I provide a couple of um, suggestions for solutions on how we could move forward at the professional level in the draft, but also in the developmental level in high performance sport um, systems like on the podium or um, Australia's FTEM, like those kinds of uh, bigger, broader social systems. Awesome. Joe, thank you so much. This has been tremendously informative, a lot of fun. I've already promised the listeners round two, so I committed you to that. I'm sorry. Before we jump, Tell, tell people where they can buy your book. Tell them where they can find you, follow you, all that good stuff. Sure. The book is, at the moment, it's on sale um, on Amazon. And the reason we did that was to try to keep the price point low to get more coaches uh, buying it. You can get it there in paperback and on Kindle. Um, over the holidays, I'm recording the Audible uh, version, so you'll be able to access it there. Um any questions, comments, please direct them to me. I'm on Twitter at uh, Baker J York U, or you can find me at uh, on the internet. Um, always happy to have a chat with coaches about talent or anybody. Uh, this is we love to do this all day, every day. So uh, love the talent discussions. Thank you so much for joining us, Joe. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Alex. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast. You can learn more about the work we're doing helping high performers develop their own unfair advantage at our substack at unfairadv.substack.com.